This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 7, Episode 21. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network of shows, brought to you by Silencer Shop. Today is Wednesday, December 22nd, 2022, as of the recording of this episode, and I am your host, Riley Bowman, and I'm joined today by my co-host and producer, Matthew Marister. Merry Christmas, sir. Early. Indeed. Merry Christmas. In fact, uh, if you guys are catching this uh, recording live, as we we record this live on YouTube and Facebook, uh, it is just a few days before Christmas. And if you're listening to the audio uh, uh, version of the podcast, then you're probably catching this a few days after Christmas. But yes, indeed, we wish you all Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, a Happy New Year, and hope everyone is doing well wherever you are, safe in your travels, safe in your gun handling, and hopefully not having to dispatch any any bad guys out there. <laughs> uh, we just hope you're all doing well wherever you are. But we're happy to be with you for another Concealed Carry Podcast episode. Make sure if you missed uh, last week's special announcement that we published, uh, you may want to go back and catch that for some uh, slight changes we've made to the podcast going forward. Uh, those changes, I guess I, sh- I should say, are in effect as of now. So uh, we are now, I guess, under our new format or whatever you want to refer to it as. But uh, anyway, we have got a great episode for you here today. We're going to talk about transitions on single value targets. And we'll explain what that is, what that means. But this is inspired by the most recent Shooter Ready Challenge uh, dry fire you know, video that gets published on ShooterReadyChallenge.com once per month. And looking forward to breaking that down and discussing it here with Matthew. And we also got an update I think you'll want to stick around for and uh, we're going to share with you an update from the Greenwood Mall shooting uh, that just came out today. Some information has come out and I uh, thought we'd share with you a little bit about that because we think that's uh, of interest enough. We may also do a dedicated episode breaking it down in the future as well. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But uh, anyway, today's episode <clears throat> is sponsored by Laser App. L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. That stands for the Laser Activated Shot Reporter. That's their application or software that we use for the Shooter Aid Challenge, and I've been using for personal dry fire practice for a number of years now. If you want, in my opinion, the best dry fire software program out there that in conjunction with some kind of laser uh, shooting aid, like a cert pistol or a cool fire trainer or a... Uh, a laser dot trainer that you put into the chamber of your gun from ready up gear or any number of similar products i guys i i, I strongly recommend that you take a look at laserapp.com go to that website sign up today uh you can get signed up on a, under a variety of the different uh, uh sign up options that they have available we hope you'll take advantage of that, all right? And they've got some some great stuff uh, going on there and great people behind that company. We've been friends with them for a lot of years now. LaserApp.com, and we appreciate their support of the podcast and of the Shooter Ready Challenge. Next up, we got today's sponsor, BarrelBlock. BarrelBlock.com, another dry fire training tool. Uh, this one with safe, well, everything we should, I should say, has safety in mind, but this one specifically has safety in mind. If you're doing dry fire practice and you're not using one of those laser uh, training aids that, uh, that we just talked about, please consider using a barrel block in your live fire gun so that you can do dry fire even more safely than you ever have before. This takes away any, removes any doubt that uh, your gun is clear because it completely blocks the chamber, the barrel, and even protrudes from the end of the gun uh, at at a trimmable length. You can trim it down to whatever length that you would like. Available 9mm, 380, 40, 45, even 357 SIG for some of you uh, strange folks out there that still use that round. <laughs> it's a good round. But anyway, yeah, we make them for those too. Or you can also get the 556 variety as well check them out barrelblock.com b-a-r-r-e-l-b-l-o-k.com that's barrelblock with a k.com 
So, uh, Matthew, let's get into it here now. So, first of all, quick little update from the Greenwood Mall shooting. This is what's known as the Eli Dickin incident. And to be clear, it is Dickin, not Dickens. Many people make that mistake. Uh, but everywhere I've seen, his his information is published as being Eli Dickin, without an S. Uh he, of course, is our hero of the Greenwood Mall shooting, which occurred a number of months ago. And famously, what came out initially was that he fired 10 shots and hit eight of them at 40 plus yards uh, with uh, with a handgun against a, a guy that entered in to that uh, into the kind of food court area, this mall with a rifle and started shooting the place up. But Eli responded uh, took cover, fired these 10 rounds, and hit eight of them. That's that's what was reported for a long time. That's all we knew. People created the Dickon drill and all this, right, based on that supposed incident. Um, but you know what? We should uh, exercise caution with such things as far as uh, it, it's very easy to uh, create myths, right? To uh, And that's essentially what happened here was that people's perception of what Eli Dickon did was uh, was one thing when the reality of you know recently there's been a report that's come out and some some actually up to date information on that incident as to what actually occurred and here's what's interesting Matthew you know probably a lot of times where we learn of things and maybe things get blown out of proportion uh, where people what they think occurred is probably in reality more uh, what they think occurred was more impressive than what reality actually was but what i think is interesting about this dickon uh incident is what he did i think is actually more impressive than what people thought he or think he did and uh that's uh that's doing a disservice to him uh Mm -hmm. because i think he should be honored uh for uh the actions that he took matthew i I shared with you the information that came out a bit ago and uh, perhaps you could summarize for us uh what we've just learned Yeah. So, okay. So typically, you know, I don't like to do this, but like, um, I haven't read the official report or where this information is coming from. It's coming from a credible person, uh, Caleb Giddings or Steve Fisher, um, and and, and through, through Riley T. Bowman. Sorry. uh, Yeah. So I'm friends with both Steve Fisher, a reputable instructor, and Caleb Giddings as well, a reputable instructor, shooter, um, and actually works for uh, Taurus now uh, as their marketing manager, marketing director, or whatever. Um, But uh, initially, I saw this from Steve Fisher, who I trust. and uh, But I realized after reading it again that he was quoting that from Caleb Giddings, uh, both reputable sources. The information that Caleb provided came from an interview with, uh, I believe, the attorney that represented or is representing Eli Dickens. So some pretty good firsthand information as far as that's concerned. So anyway, I just wanted to clarify where the information came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we always harp on trying to get the the facts out there and we don't want to spread rumors, but this seems to be pretty legit info. So uh, typically, or, or, or essentially, this is uh, the information, the new information that we've we've found out. So uh, the good guy reacts to shots being fired. He draws his firearm uh, and moves to cover. He fires two rounds at 43 yards. Both of these rounds miss uh, the shooter. Uh, he pauses for customers to clear the sight line and he fires two more rounds from essentially that same distance, 43 yards. Uh, and it, these are both hits. So, you know, so, so far, if you're tracking, there's four rounds uh, at 43 yards. He's, he's hit two out of the four. Uh, the bad guy starts to uh, retreat. Uh, to, if you recall, he's trying to retreat to a bathroom in the food court area. Uh uh, the good guy maneuvers. He he closes the distance, uh, maneuvers into about twenty yards, uh, gets a clear angle, a fire on on the bad guy who's still armed with the with the rifle. Remember, um, and he fires four times at around twenty yards, and he gets four hits. Um, so, uh, you know, essentially, uh, he's has six uh, six hits on this guy, uh, and the guy is still alive. So, um, 
the good guy closes the distance even more. Uh, he gets right under 10 yards or so and fires two rounds, uh, which ultimately end up incapacitating the bad guy. There was a lot of uh, questions about the gun and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, he's using a, a Glock 19 stock, uh, stock Glock 19 with the plastic factory sights. Um, and apparently there's some information that the sites were damaged from a motorcycle crash, I guess, you know, before that. So I don't know how damaged the sites were, but, um, you know, he's, he's getting hits at 43 yards with damaged plastic, you know, Glock sites. Um, and he, you know, there's no red dot. He wasn't using a red dot or anything like that. Right. Um, and additionally, it says that he, that, that he had no formal training. Uh, he wasn't a, a cop, a, you know, a security guard or anything like that with any formal, uh, firearms training or anything like that. But it did say that, uh, he dry fires regularly, which I thought it was pretty, apropos since you know this is the shooter ray challenge where we're talking about you know the importance of dry fire and including different tools that help um, increase the you know the effectiveness or the the variety and different things you can do in dry fire and so you know th this is not to say that dry uh, that live fire is you know non-essential of course it is but um you can you know you can hone a lot of things and you can work out a lot of a lot of kinks through dry fire and go out and confirm through live fire but uh but if you're missing dry fire you know clearly uh it has it has some impact on on performance um and so that's kind of you know I'll, I'll hand it back to you but that's kind of like the the new information that it was new to me so well, and, and me as well. You know, I, I, um, we should, again, we should exercise caution and care when we want, everyone wants to jump, you know, at the opportunity uh, on both sides of the, like, gun debate. Uh, you got anti-gunners that frequently jump on opportunities that they feel like they can use to promote their cause. Uh, you got people on the pro-gun side that kind of want to do the same thing. Like, look, you know, and, and, and rightfully so, because... You know, we generally try to be careful about uh, talking about such incidents immediately after. I like to give a few days uh, so we get some credible information, typically, you know, at least some credible information that comes out uh, immediately in the aftermath of an incident because there's so much speculation right after an incident. Everyone's like, oh, we think this happened. We think that happened. Somebody, you know, dug out, dug up this social media information on the perpetrator, you know, and, and, and there's even been incidences where people have gotten the wrong person and those people have gotten inundated with, uh, basically hate messages like oh you're a terrible person you know and, and they're like it's not me it's not me i just happened to share a name with the guy you know i think that happened with this uh shooting in colorado springs a while back that there happened to be somebody else that had the same name and i remember seeing that in the news that uh, the wrong guy got you know the wrong messages a lot of hate mail uh and that's not right either but anyway so um you know the we, we should exercise some caution though because it is, this applies to both sides. Uh, instead of rushing to judgment on certain things, like it's really important we let investigations take their course, and that uh, we, you know, wait for official word, you know, before we can really know for sure what happened. A lot of times, now, I'm reminded Matthew of the uh, the shooting in North Texas at the church. Uh, you know, this would be the having all of a sudden a senior moment. <laughs> is it this? Um... <laughs> Uh, white, Why can't I white think of his it? name? Jack Wilson, right? Um, I remember in the aftermath, like a couple days after that happened, I uh, went to the range and I'm like, because I, I just wanted to ask myself the question, like, hey, can I draw and in three seconds or less reliably get a hit on a head-sized target at 15 yards? Can I do that? And so I did it. And I filmed it and put it up on YouTube and said, hey, this is the Jack Wilson test i called it because i i think of it as more of a test as opposed to say like a drill because it's a drill it's like well you can run a drill and run it repeatedly and shoot it until you pass it or whatever uh but but this is a hey this is a go or no go kind of situation this is a pass fail situation go to the range do it cold because jack wilson didn't get any warm-up shots uh and uh 
draw your gun and see if you can reliably get a hit on top on a, on a head sized target at 15 yards. Right. So Jack Wilson test was born. Um, to my knowledge, I'm the first person that posted anything like that on the internet. And not that like that should be the end goal, right? I'm talking about the, you know, the talking about having or exercising caution with such things. Uh, cause pe- people were quick to come out with a dick and drill, which now is meaningless because the dick and drill is not exactly what happened. Uh, not that a drill has to be exactly, or not that it has to replicate exactly what happened in a situation. Drills are really just shooting evaluation opportunities, right? Uh, shooting tests. But in the case of Jack Wilson, that one's a little bit different because we had surveillance video footage of ex- of exactly what happened and had pretty good information, even just by scaling off of the video. Like we knew pretty much how far Jack was from his target. We knew that he hit the guy in the head. We knew, you know, so we, we knew a lot more and I felt a lot more comfortable, you know, coming out and saying, Hey, here is a shooting test, uh, based off of what this man accomplished. Uh, but anyway, we didn't have a lot of the same information in the, in this, uh, Greenwood mall shooting, uh, at least until just recently. Now there was a press conference that the FBI and Greenwood police just had a day or two ago. And that's where also some of this information has come out is my understanding. Um, And supposedly there's a report. I'm going to try to go and dig that all up and we'll break this down in a future episode. So there you go. Thought we'd just take a few minutes and here and and because this is a, a, I think an important enough incident that occurred. uh, I think it's good to to update you all and keep you apprised of uh, what's going on there because uh, it's relevant to us as concealed carriers. I mean, he was just a, a regular dude carrying a gun that decided to take action and save lives in a significant way mm-hmm. in that mall that day. So bravo to him. He deserves all the credit and, and especially so like, like we already just covered what he actually did was even more impressive than what people originally thought he did. Uh, yeah. And some people will look at it like his t- 20 yard shots and his 10 yard shots and be like, well, the shooting part of it wasn't nearly as impressive as, you know, shooting 10 rounds at 40 yards and you know, whatnot. That's not what I'm talking about. The fact that he closed in on his enemy who was armed with a semi-automatic rifle when Eli himself was carrying a Glock 19 shows an incredible amount of courage and a willingness you know, to, to engage and to fight, which not many people have. And yeah. that is far more impressive that he kept pressing the attack and pressing. Cause at that point he had seized the advantage, right? That that's not the time to let up. You keep pressing that attack until you have actually ended the attack in this case, uh, through the ending of, of the attacker's life, which is often going to have to be the case sometimes. So anyway, there you go. Hmm. Interesting stuff. Let's talk about transitions on single value targets. Yeah, let's so uh, the, again, this is based off the most recent shooter ready challenge. Um, as is, I think, kind of typical. I'm going to turn it back to you, Matthew. I want to. You, you've uh, had the chance, I think, to review the shooter ready challenge for the month of sure. December. Uh, kind of want to hear your initial take on that and your interpretation of what this month's challenge was all about. And then we'll break that down into this topic today of transitions on single value targets. Yeah. So this uh, actually LASR, um, the the manufacturer of the of the shot reporting software that we, we use in, in the shoot array challenge, they actually have a poster um, that has... You know, if you stand a, a, a set distance from it, uh, accurately uh, represents or reflects a, a steel challenge um, five to go uh, match or uh, uh, stage. And uh, essentially what this does is, you know, there, there's five targets, steel targets, um, and they're from, I believe, I'm, I'm not a steel challenge guy, but I think the first one's like 30 feet out to 50 some feet um something like that yeah uh i haven't looked at this specifics on this stage in a while yeah i, th- uh, I think it's roughly that and and basically yeah, you're looking at about right. 10 inch 10 inch steel plates four 10 inch steel plates and then there is a stop plate um that I, is 
it's closer, maybe 20, 20 feet or something. Somebody's going to tell me in, in the comments. So uh, here you go. Five to go is the name of the stage we used for this example. And yeah, you're correct. It's five or uh, excuse me, four 10 inch plates yep. and one 12 inch plate. The mm-hmm. 10 inch plates are placed at 10 yards, 12 yards, 15 yards, and 18 yards. And then there's a stop plate. And those are kind of relatively close to one another. And then to to the shooter's right, uh, and those ones are more like straight down range of the shooter. But then you have to the shooter has to turn a significant, you know, almost like forty five degrees to the right to a stop plate, which is at seven yards. So right. There you go. Yeah. So and and so this this uh, stage basically the reason why it, it has transitions or why the, the topic is transitions is obviously you're transitioning. Um, not only are you transitioning, you know, different distances, or, you know, different distance of targets in between targets, because the first four targets are uh, closer than your transition to the last target, but you're also transitioning um, distances too. So those, those targets are going to appear smaller, right. At distance. And so this creates, um, you know, two, two different uh, problems for us, right? Like the size of the target is, you know, uh, acceptable hit area is shrinking at distance um, and we're having transitions of different distances. So it's not like you can, uh, where there's some drills where you may be able to time it almost, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to say time it, but um, if the targets are, you know, spaced evenly, um, there's almost, you know, uh, if you're moving at a, at a certain speed, you can uh, keep us the same um, cadence, but you you can't do that on here, right? Because you're you're transitioning to different size targets, and you're going to have to take care at, at, on different targets. So this this drill is is really interesting. Um, you're doing it with the with the, obviously the LSR, uh software with the with the poster on the wall, and then using a cert but a cert pistol. So you can have repeated shots. Uh, but I, I also like that you uh, gave an option for, you know, those that don't have a cert pistol that has a repeating um, laser. So, you know, if you have just have something like uh, our um, laser dot trainer that, you know, you'd have to rack the slide if you have a, uh, um, a striker fire gun in between, yep. you only get one that you can, you can still run this drill or, or this uh, stage. So, I thought it was in- using the software. Yes. Uh, and, and, and to that point, like, here's the thing with respect to these shooter ready challenges. Uh, yeah, we use the laser software. We use a variety of different dry fire training aids. Uh, but you know what? The whole point is to give people some ideas, some tips, some suggestions, some basic instruction. Uh, like, hey, you know, here's how to do transitions better kind of stuff, right? If all you have the ability to do and all you do do is set up your own simulated transitions that are it doesn't even have to look exactly like what i have here but maybe that just kind of demonstrate or or simulate the same type of challenges and all you do is go through the dry fire motions with your live gun with without any other dry fire training aids like that's great mm-hmm. that's that's wonderful. That's way more than what most people ever even consider doing. So the point with shoot rate challenge is not that you got to have this fancy setup to do all these things. It's like, like, yes, one, I demonstrate, we have the tools available and and I demonstrate that. So you can kind of see what's possible in dry fire. But if all you do is just go through the motions with your actual gun, your carry gun, your competition gun by just, you know, pressing through the trigger, even if, you don't have to reset the slide every time. You can just go, you can, you can do that initial click and then you can just simulate a trigger press. The most important thing is like everything else and especially connecting your vision as far as like what you're looking at and what you're focusing on, what you're seeing in your sights uh, and connecting all of that, like all the, all the manipulations, all the fundamentals yeah, you don't get shots off, you don't get recoil, all that, whatever. But I promise you, there is benefit to doing dry fire practice, even in the simplistic manner, which I've just described. I've done it for years. Part of getting to the level where I am currently has been as a result of doing dry fire. And yeah, I've used laser 
app software for a number of years, but I don't always use it every time I do dry fire. Because if I did, I wouldn't get dry fire done nearly as often because every time I do, I, I got to spend a few minutes getting it set up. There's times where I'm like, you know what? I got five minutes. Let's make my gun safe. Let's insert a, let's insert a barrel block and let's just do five minutes of quick reps on whatever. And like that, that stuff adds up. That is in part how I got into my current level of skill, which is, you know, pretty good. So anyway, I just wanted to make sure we clarify. I, I appreciate you acknowledging that I, I provided another option. If someone didn't have a cert or a cool fire trainer or something like that, you could, you know, you could have something as simple as you can buy them for like 40 something bucks, 50 bucks, a uh, laser dot trainer from readyupgear.com, one of our companies and one of our sponsors of Shooter Raid Challenge. Uh, you, you could buy that, put that in the chamber of your gun, use a laser app software. In this case, I use the Laser X version. And you could simulate trigger presses on your first four targets and then click the trigger on the fifth one to register a hit on it that the software can then see. And, and in that way, you could get uh, a readout of a time. Like it took me 3.35 seconds to shoot this, you know, five to go stage or whatever. So there's, there's a lot of ways you, the point to this is there's a lot of ways you could do it. Just be doing some dry fire practice because it will make you better. Yeah. And and here's the thing, like, obviously, you know, having that poster in conjunction with the LASR software and a cert pistol, that's ideally, you know, uh, how you, how you'd want to do this. But like, if the point of breaking this down and why we're going to talk about transitions and, and there you go in the, in the, in the video, Riley shown the, the uh, poster, but the They're great, they're really the, great, a great product. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the importance of discussing transitions in kind of breaking down uh, this stage is the, the fundamentals of what's being tested in the stage. You can do it a, a bunch of different ways. That's the point. Like what we want to do is practice transitions, transitions of, uh, you know, of distance, but also, you know, uh, transitions of different size targets. And, um, and so you can do that a, a bunch of different ways. This is one stage in a steel challenge and one way you can do it and replicate it. Um, but you know, the, and I, before I hand it back over to you, I'll just kind of tee it up. And one of the, you know, unique things about the steel challenge is these are single value targets, right? It's either hit or miss. And so you, you, there is a little bit of a difference, I guess, um, of the way you look at, um, how you engage, uh, you know, a single, single value target, I, I guess in, in a stage where you can't afford it, you know, it's either, uh, all or nothing. You don't get a five ring and a four ring and a three ring, you know, it's, it's all or nothing. So as far as staging or, or um, competitive wise, you know, the, w- the way you would uh, look at this would be a little bit different um, than, than a, a, a target of multiple values. So, mm-hmm. and you, yeah. I know you, you can explain it much better than I can. So, well, so before I add some more thoughts to that, here's a question for you, Matthew, because this is this is a topic that comes up. I think uh, you know, as far as a, a discussion uh, point, what would you, what's better for training? Would you say shooting at a steel target or shooting at a paper target? Like in your like, think think through that and just think, what is better for training, shooting steel or shooting paper? Yeah, I think it depends on. Uh, really what you're, what you're training, right? Like what, what are you trying to get? Um, steel targets will give you, I, I, I know one of the reasons people like steel targets is that they have immediate feedback. You can hear it. Um, the downside of that is, you know, a hit on the tinking the corner of that target is, is the same as, you know, in the center of it. And in a, in a defensive shooting, you know, somebody could say, well, you know, you just want to get hits on, on, on the threat. Well, probably, you know, it certainly hits are better than no hits, but we want effective hits essentially, right? Cause that's, what's going to stop the threat sooner. So I, I think, um, in ideal world, it would be cool if you could have both, you know, like, uh, 
you know, a little bit of both where you have feedback. Um, but I think I, I, I like the all or nothing approach personally, um, because essentially that's how I look at it. You know, you're either getting effective hits on target or you're not now on a body, you know, you, you could say, um, there are places where you would have an effective hit or let's say you, sh- sh- you, you get a hit in a, in an arm. To me, that would be a miss. It wouldn't be considered a, a four ring or a three ring. It's just a miss, right? Like, because we're affected, we're trying to get effective hits and effective hits count and mean effective hits. They might have some effect, but they're, they're not hits, you know? And so, um, I don't know. I don't know if that answers the question, but like, I think it kind of depends on, there's certainly times where you want to have a, 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 a scoring ring where, you know, there's, there's some of that, but I think I like the all or nothing, you know, it's either in or it's out. Yeah. So a, a common, I think, debate that is, that I see occasionally is uh, with respect to d- different targets used for training is you'll see some people that call out people that use a lot of steel targets because they will, d- the response is essentially that there's a lack of accountability for hits sure. because like with a paper target, like let's say your desired where you're trying to really put rounds is on the high center chest. So like mm-hmm. an A zone or IDPA eight inch zone, or if you're using the pistol intelligence uh, target uh, PIQ target from us here at concealedcarry.com, um, the target of my design where you, you kind of get both of those options. You can use an A zone or, or what I really like, I really like, how in this high center chest portion of that target, there is a uh, little bit bigger than a three inch circle, which represents a 10, 10 ring from a NRA B8 target. That that's a really that's a fairly small target, but it's a really good one to try to hold yourself accountable to, especially if you want to have reliable hits in like the heart area uh, of of a typical you know sized human. Uh, even the nine ring of a B8, which is five and a half inches across. Uh, is 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 a pretty good zone to hold yourself accountable to, as far as getting good effective hits uh, on a th- on a human threat. Uh, but there's there's a lot of ways you can use that target. But what people would say is, well, with a target like that, with a paper target, I can hold myself accountable because I'm trying to hit a certain small small zone, relatively small zone, and then obviously if I miss that, I can see where my misses are, and then in that way, there's some accountability, right? I can diagnose those misses. I can talk about why they occurred. I can try to make those improvements. Uh, but if I'm just shooting at steel, I either hit the steel or I don't hit the steel. But and the truth is, a lot of people use steel that's way uh, bigger, oversized, right? You know, based on for for a particular for a given distance sure. than what you know you might want to hold yourself accountable to at that same distance on a human target or even on a paper target with a smaller zone drawn on it. Um, so I think it's just really important to understand context and what you're using and being realistic about the target that you are using as far as setting your your level of accountability. Uh, I have no problem with steel being used. I think that steel has a, a place and can be used effectively in certain aspects. And I think paper is, you know, paper targets are important to use as well. Uh, they, they both serve a purpose. Uh, we just need to keep things in context and uh, perspective. Uh, here's what I like about steel targets is that, like you just said, they they are, this is what we call a single value target. So, uh, a hit in the bottom right corner of that steel target counts exactly the same as a hit in the center of that target, right? But that's true if I'm using a, a USPSA A zone. A hit in the very bo- far bottom right corner of the A zone is counts the same as one dead center in the A zone. Or the hit, you know, a line break on a, on a, a IDPA down zero, you know, target. That would be like the center high chest is an eight-inch circle, a, a line break on that counts the same as one in the very dead center of it, right? So again, just got to keep things in perspective here. Uh, what steel does really well is it lets you know when you miss. Like, like there, there is no doubt that you miss, right? Because there's no ping or ring or ding of the steel. Uh, it's a hit or it's a miss, and you know it for sure. 
there's there's something to be said for that. Now, here here's the thing with single value targets, and this could be true if you're using a paper target that has different scoring areas. Uh, you you can always change up your own level of accountability. Okay, even when you have additional scoring areas or scoring rings, let's say, uh, you can always choose to hold yourself to a higher standard. So, for instance, in the uh, in what I call my pistol IQ standards, these are my five areas of competency that I run shooters through in my pistol intelligence class. Uh, in that whole, in actually four of the five of those standards, the very first one is what I call an accuracy standard, which is shot on a NRA B8 type target. And it's scored according to the different scoring rings that the shooter places rounds into. Everything else from that point forward, so there's a draw standard, a recoil control standard, uh, uh, a transition standard, and a throttle control standard. So those other four performance standards, you have designated target areas. They're each in every hit in those target areas is worth five points. If you miss those target zones, it's zero. So that's just an example of how uh, even with that, with my own performance standard that I created for my particular curriculum, uh, even though there are other scoring areas on the target itself, I tell the shooter that's performing that standard, this is like, you have to hit this zone. If you fail to hit this zone, it counts as nothing. It's a zero. Okay. So that's still an example of a single value target. You, for every hit in those zones, you get five points. You don't hit it, you get zero points. So let's talk now about transitions on single value targets. Now, I personally believe Matthew, that we as shooters could do a better job a lot of times of holding ourselves accountable to target zones or hit zones or hit areas or whatever target areas, whatever terminology you want to use. I think that there's lots of times that we get a little bit lazy and we deem certain things acceptable that are, well, maybe they are acceptable to a degree, but I think we could hold ourselves to a higher standard a lot of times. Let me give you an example. And actually, I'm going to borrow terminology from my friend, Matt Little. Uh, Matt does a great job in his class to talk about optimal targets, acceptable targets. And I can't remember the exact terminology he used. I think he says marginal or uh, suboptimal or something like that. Uh, but basically, when he's talking about like a humanoid target, an optimal target area is like fist-sized. Okay, so four four inches, let's say, in diameter. So an optimal hit hit zone on a human-sized target is about the size of a fist. That's, that's about the size of their heart, right? That's optimal for obvious reasons. So if I can place rounds in the heart, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the job done pretty quickly, relatively speaking. And then he explains that, say, like the area you know, bigger than that, but he, I think he likes to use something a little bit bigger than an A zone, but a little bit smaller than a C zone on a USPSA target. That's what he considers to be an acceptable target area. So it's not optimal because you'd rather hit that optimal zone. However, rounds placed in the acceptable target area are acceptable, meaning that, well, it's better than unacceptable. It's better than winging somebody on, you know, on the periphery that either passes straight through and doesn't do a whole lot doesn't hit anything vital or misses entirely and puts somebody else in jeopardy. Right. So, and I appreciate how he explains that in his curriculum, optimal targets and acceptable targets. And so I've tried to take a somewhat of a similar approach that with respect to, that's partly, partly one of the reasons why my, my pistol IQ standards involve using uh, targets where you got to hit the target, get five points. And if you don't, you get zero. Okay. And I know it doesn't give any recognition to what might be considered acceptable hits, but it's because, hey, we're in training mode. And I think, and, and particularly when I'm testing my students and the pistol IQ standards is a part of a test. Uh, I want to make it harder than what 
maybe reality would be as far as what's an acceptable uh, hit or not. And so in that case, we say what's optimal and acceptable are the same thing. A single value target. This is your zone. You must hit that zone. Failure to do so, zero points. That's not a bad thing to make training, you have to step it up a bit so that, I mean, hopefully you can still perform to that level in a real life situation. But even if you can't or whatever, like the point is make your training, you know, push yourself in training, you know, to hopefully make your preparation for the real thing a little bit, well, so that you're better prepared. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, I, I think in training we have, and this is why you know we kind of started with the uh, Dickin uh, information and said it's actually much more impressive if you, t- yes, the technical like shooting is impressive, right? But like, if you take in people running, him having to move close distances, react to what the shooter is doing. Um, and, and to what all the other people plus control his own emotions and, and what's going on. Like those things are, are things that we don't really, we can't really actually ac- accurately replicate on the range. So when you add that level of, of stress and environment and physiology into it, it becomes doing the technical things becomes a little bit more difficult. It's more challenging, right? So, you know, and somebody is going to say, well, certainly, you know, if I just wing start cranking rounds towards the bad guy, you know, they're going to have an effect even if they don't hit them. Yeah, maybe, right? Maybe you just start laying down suppressive fire. Yeah, m- maybe those rounds, the guy, the bad guy's going to retreat to the bathroom, but you might hit other people, random people that you really don't want to shoot. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe you need to stop this person quickly. And so, like, you know, if we just say, you know, well, I don't. Uh, you know, a, a shot in the arm might, might slow him down. Yes, absolutely. But that's not, that's not our goal. Our goal is to get accurate hits, center mass, at least, at least be able to do that in, in training. So under, you know, so in the, the actual moment, uh, if your skill set is, is diminished a little bit due to, you know, environment and, and those types of things, then you still have an acceptable you know, uh, skill set that you're not just relying on, well, I can drive him back into the, into the bathroom. I don't even need to be accurate. I'll just, you know, start cranking around. I mean, that's not, that's not what we want. So I, I appreciate yeah. how you broke that down to, um, you know, we, we want, we want accurate hits, uh, there, you know, but, um, we we have to hold to us ourselves to a standard higher at least in practice so so that um we can perform in, in, in the real thing during the real thing right yeah yeah yep i i agree with everything you just said or added to that uh so well and here's another thing right so uh just talking about you know we've we've referenced so far this episode Elisha Dickin. We've referenced Jack Wilson. Oh, the Jack Wilson incident, his headshot, that, that is what I would definitely, like in a real world environment, consider a single value target uh, because you have a, a relatively, roughly about a fist sized area. Uh, you know, when you're looking straight on the fist, kind of like I'm holding it in front of my, like I'm brown nosing or something, you know, like um, that, that's a relatively small zone. Okay. And if you put around there, chances are it's going to have good effect. If you miss just outside that, it may not have really much effect at all. Uh, lots of people get shot in the head, quote, quote unquote head or face and, you know, live to tell the tale. Uh, you'd be surprised how often people can take rounds to the, to the face, to the cheeks, the mouth, uh, even glancing rounds off of the, the dome itself, off the, off the skull. Uh, point is, is you're either in that hit zone or you're not a lot of times. And so that's another example of a single value target. So again, the title of this episode is transitions on single value targets. The steel challenge stage that we presented in, in the shooter rate challenge for the month of December is a great opportunity to talk about this because what happens, Matthew, a lot of times, People, uh, they see a steel target, especially when it involves multiple targets that they're trying to transition between. 
and they tend to disrespect it. Okay, they tend to shoot faster than what they should, because uh, essentially what happens is they see their sights appear on that target, and they think, "Well, it's on there, so I'm going to send the shot." But on there might mean sights are on the edge of the target. Sights are on the middle of the target. Sights are in kind of the middle third of the target. You know, again, because we recognize that a hit's a hit anywhere on that steel. And so what happens is psychologically, we just decide whenever I, we, I see my sights on that, on that target, I'm going to send the shot. But that's not always good enough. What we really need is to give ourselves a little bit of a buffer. Okay, and by that, what our objective needs to be is getting our sights on the middle or the center of that target. Okay, having a little bit more discipline and not setting the shot until we see sights in the middle of the target. By that, we have to ignore when it's on the edge and go, oh, I need a little bit more refinement here because about 50% of the time, sights on the edge will hit and 50% of the time, it'll miss you know, or, or, or worse. And so, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's hard, hard. It's easy to talk about. It's harder to do. It's something I've struggled with, uh, quite a bit actually, because I, I tend to, I, I tend, I just, I have this strong desire that when I see my sights in this target zone, which I look at the steel plate and I think that's my target. When I see my sights in there, I, I just, I want to send the shot. And so it's been uh, the last year or so, uh, especially in the last year, I've put a lot greater emphasis into holding myself accountable to seeing my sight in the center of that steel target and trying to not send the shot until I see that. And that requires a much greater degree of discipline. So here's how that is important where something like this steel challenge stage come into play. So in other words, you have multiple targets and they're all single value targets Meaning, so keep in mind that we're using the terminology single value target to simply indicate that there's no partial hits. There's no partial scores. It's either a hit or it's a miss. And therefore, we have to build in our own level of like optimal target area, right? Like if I hit the edge of a plate, I that is acceptable. Like, all right, great. I got it because it hits a hit. That's acceptable, but I have to tell myself what's optimal and what I have to strive for is the middle portion of the plate. So as it relates to transitions, what do we have to accomplish? It's exceedingly important that as I go from, let's, well, let's talk about the very first target, right? So right from the draw, where do my eyes need to be? My eyes need to be locked on, not just the first target, not just the first plate, they need to be locked on the center of that plate. That's easier said than done. If you think about it, and, and I would encourage you to experiment with this. Put up a, you can you can go to our website to concealedcarry.com forward slash print targets. And that's, that's our repository for a bunch of like free training targets and dry fire targets and things like that. Go there and print off the target that is just a, sim, the, just a single eight inch circle. Okay, put up the eight-inch circle, tape it to your wall, and stand. Uh, let's just say seven to eight feet away. Okay, maybe across the room, whatever you think is appropriate. And I want you to look at that eight-inch circle, and I want you to do everything you can to look at the very center of that circle, and pay close attention to any of the sensations and and. Anything that you can be aware of while you're trying to focus on the center of that target. And what I think you'll find is it's a lot more difficult to focus on the center of that white space contained within that 8-inch circle than what you think. If you pay close attention, what you'll sometimes find is that your eyes may kind of wander a little bit within that circle as opposed to really locking on the center. And you may even recognize, well, where is the exact center? Now, if you actually took a Sharpie and drew in the middle there a dot or a square, a small square or a dot or something like that, all of a sudden your eyes would be drawn to that and you'd have no problem whatsoever locking onto that. But when you're just looking at this wide open circle with white space in the middle, 
pay close attention to how difficult it is for you to actually discern where the exact center is and try to lock your eyes on that without them wandering. It's surprisingly challenging. Now, it is actually a very good visual exercise to do and recognize that there's some real-world applicability here because trying to lock your eyes on the center of a human threat where you don't get a precise aiming point, you see an object that it is relatively large in size compared to, you know, I mean, as far as a target goes, and trying to pick and, and discern and, and settle on the very center of what you want to aim at on that target. Like looking at me right now on this video, what you actually will see, what will jump out at you is I have this logo, FTA, Firearm Trainers Association. This is what's going to jump out to you, right? Your eyes will be drawn to that. Is that where you want to shoot me? Not quite. It's not too far off, but it's it's you're probably hitting my lung, which is oh, that's fine too, I suppose. But that's an acceptable hit. But what's what you really want is here. How much more difficult is is it to you know? Let me get this cord out of the way so it's not even there to distract you. How much more difficult is it to focus here than it is to focus over here on this big white logo thing? I mean, that that's what I'm talking about here. Okay, but this is what we have to learn and train our eyes to be able to do to have success with transitioning onto single value targets. We need to lock our eye on the center of those targets and then bring our sights to that without things wandering. And so talking our way through this five to go still challenge stage. Right from the draw, my eyes need to be locked on the center of the very first target I'm going to shoot. Which most people that shoot this stage in the actual still challenge matches, they're going to shoot. They're going to shoot everything left to right, okay? Because it's the most natural way to do it. I mean, you could do it in a number of ways. Your stop plate is what you're supposed to end on, and the stop plate in this case is on the far right side. You could shoot far to near, which would be shooting the other four targets right to left. But then you have a much wider transition for that final transition. So. The, the intuitive thing to do is to go left to right, which is the closer of the 10-inch steel plates, and then the, the next further, and then the next further, and, the next, and then the furthest one, and then finally, it's still a wide transition, but it's not, you know, it's not as wide as if it would be if you were coming from the far left target, right? So then you have a little bit of a transition over to the stop plate on the right. Your eye needs to go from that first target, the center of it, right to the center of the next target, right to the center of the next target, right to the center of the next target, and then finally to the center of the stop plate, bringing your sights to the center each time as best as you can. And if you'll hold yourself uh, accountable to only sending the shot when you are, and you, you can dictate for yourself what you find to be acceptable, like how perfect do I need to see my sights on the center? Because the reality is I don't have to see it perfectly on the center. Uh, but I need to kind of de determine you know, what would be acceptable. If I look at that steel target, I would say just talking for myself. If I was to provide an estimate of what I think is acceptable. If I see my sights or my dot. Like if we were to take a, the 10-inch the plate and bring that in by 25%. So shrink it by, so it's a 10 inch plate. Let's say it was a eight inch plate. If I pretend that it's an eight inch plate, if I'm within eight inches, my sights are somewhere within the, the middle 80% of that plate. That's typically good enough for me. But that's only true if your fundamentals, as far as how well you can hold, maintain the gun's orientation while pressing the trigger. So for you, whoever you are out there, you might need to hold your, hold yourself even more accountable to maybe the middle 50% or 40% to give yourself a little extra buffer so that if your fundamentals with grip and trigger press are not quite perfect, you hopefully still are landing on the plate. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, um, I think it, I've done this with myself and with other shooters in the past, uh, trying to drive home this point. Like I'll just put up a, you know, a six inch circle 
and have them, you know, hey, I want you to, you know, put rounds in the center of the six inch circle. And they're fine getting them inside. But but as soon as I say, okay, the only thing I'm going to do differently is I'm just going to put this dot in the middle. And all of a sudden that shot group tightens up and, it, and you know, you're like, it, it's almost like a magic trick, right? Like I'm not going to change, you're not going to change anything that you're doing. You're just, eyes are going to focus on a different, on the center of this, as opposed to anywhere in that circle. And I think as people's skills progress or as their fundamentals get more solid, they'll understand just like kind of how much, you know, uh, you know, what is the acceptable sight picture for a target for me? I have to learn that. Like what, you know, and it's different as I progress in my shooting abilities, right? So as I get better, I can understand what type of trigger press I need for that sight picture. I can start understanding it better. So I think, you know, if you're struggling with transitions or if you're, you know, all over the place with these single value targets where there's not like a, you know, a, a center that you're, you can really hone in on, you know, put it, put a, put a dot there and practice doing that and, and get that down. So, you know, then when you start removing that, you know, you peel that back a little bit and it, it, you'll have a better understanding of where that eye should go. And, and it is a lot of psychological and, and discipline uh, of, of how you're maybe not psychological, maybe visual and, and being accountable to the, what you're seeing, I guess is a better way. Well, yeah, it's, it's vision and it's, it's visual, visual processing, uh, your, you know, your eyes bring in this visual information, the brain interprets that information. And, uh, so, I mean, it is psych psychological, I suppose, or, you know, whatever the term would be, but it, it's very much all this is in your brain, you know? Um, now putting like a small aiming point inside a target zone, like you, you talked about putting like a little dot or something inside a six inch circle and how that tightens up a shooter's group a lot of times, it's because now you're giving them a, a very defined point for their eye to fixate on. And I mean, this could be a whole other topic, a whole other episode for another time. And we've, we've touched on this, probably some things before in the past too. Uh, but as soon as you provide that, that very specific spot to fixate on that actually helps the shooter, uh, you know, use what's known as the quiet eye, which is create, you know, quiet eye is having a point of fixation where your eyes are fixated and not wandering and with activities that require aiming. This is true, whether it's aiming a gun, an arrow, a basketball, uh, a baseball, whatever, a golf ball. Like if your eye is wandering, your aim will not be as true because the reality is, is where our eyes lock onto is where we end up aiming. It will draw our sights, whatever type of sights those are. Because, uh, again, it doesn't just apply to shooting. Wherever our eyes are is where our attention is drawn to, is where our aim is drawn to. That's where typically things are going to go. And that's really important. That's why it's really important on, on transitioning onto single-value targets, why we had to get locked onto the center of those. So, But using that little fine aiming point, a dot, or whatever you can use a, a little uh, uh, a paster, you know, like a target paster, and put that. You know, those, those are typically like you know one inch squares. Put that in the center of a naming zone. zone. I sometimes do this with with uh, students of mine, and even for myself when I've you know needed to, to be a little bit dialed in better. Uh, put a little one inch square in the center of like an A zone. Let's say all of a sudden, like just whew, your eye locks to it, and it, that can be really helpful at times. But that you should think of that as being like training wheels, and where we want to get to as shooters is being able to do that automatically, being able to look at a target zone and figure out where in that zone we need to be and get our eyes locked on that. Because the reality is in the real world, we, we don't get little fine aiming points in the very precise spot on our bad guy. Like we have to discern that for ourselves and realize too, as the human anatomy moves and twists and turns that perception, you know, also changes or can change. Uh, and we have to be aware of those things as well, because we don't always shoot people that are straight on facing us. Uh, and so one final thing too, uh, that I think is relevant to 
what we're talking about here today and like someone might look at this steel challenge stage, Matthew, this five to go and be like, well, it's, that's a, that's a competition thing. Like what relevance does that have to real world shooting? Let me give you my take on that. Those 10 inch steel targets placed at 10 yards, 12, 15, 18 yards. And, and they progressively get further as you know, the target array moves to the right. So they're, they're in a diagonal. You know, that retreats to your right, okay, going further further away from you, okay? Um, transitions are, are a very relevant skill to have. Like you observed in the early part of this episode, Eli Dickin probably was placing some of these rounds on a moving target to some extent. Don't know how much he was moving exactly, but again, his first four shots were from a pretty good distance, then his next Shots were from, again, still a pretty good distance, 20 yards-ish on the final couple shots uh, from 10 yards, which is uh, an intermediate distance. Relatively close, but but you know, still requires some pretty good marksmanship skills. Um, but realize that uh, what shooting a moving target, what it looks like in a training environment, in a static range setting, is setting up multiple targets and then placing one round on each of those targets as you move across them, transition. Okay. Now you don't want to necessarily shoot those like like bang, bang, you know, just like you don't necessarily keep your hand moving across this like constant rate because you need to lock on target, send a shot, lock on target, send a shot, lock on target, send a shot. Okay. But that's basically what you have to be able to do in a real world situation that with a target that's moving. So in this case, like the five to go uh, uh, still challenge stage, Matthew, where you have a target at 10 yards and the furthest target at 18 yards moving left to right and getting further distance. I could set up, in fact, I had this idea, this, this thought came to my mind as we've been talking about this today, that I could superimpose a video of a person running from left to right slightly away and so in a diagonal fashion and you could you could superimpose that video of a person running like that and at the intersection points as they as that superimposed video comes across where these steel challenge plates are bang 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 transitioning from target to target like that even in a purely competitive environment such as is Steel Challenge, replicates really well the skill necessary to shoot a running or moving target like that. Like, where do, where do you get to practice that yeah. in a training environment? Unless you're able to do force on force, which would be one example, which not tons of people have the opportunity to do, uh, or unless you have like a running man target system, you probably don't get that opportunity. Except that every weekend and sometimes during the middle of the parts of the week, all across this this nation, the United States of America, there are USPSA matches, there are steel challenge matches, there are IDPA matches, where you get the opportunity to shoot multiple targets, transitioning targets, moving targets, and while it's those are competitive environments. They test the shooting skills that oftentimes are helpful even in or especially in defensive environments as well. Yeah, skill is skill, right? I, I mean, yep. you either have it or you don't, and it, it can you can apply it in many different ways. And so, you know, um, it, certainly there's ways you can game drills and things like that, and that's why these aren't scenarios. We're not using drills as replications of, you know, this or that it's, it's, it's building skills so that you can apply them in the context of what you, you know, what you need to apply them in. And and so the more skills you have, the better able you are to respond appropriately to different environments and different threats and different and moving and, and this and that, and who knows what cards you're going to be dealt. You might be dealt the dude that stands there like this, you know, and doesn't move and lets you just, you know, pump rounds into them. I don't know. Ho- hopefully if that's, if you've never practiced transitions, great. Um, but, 
you know, yeah. I don't think anybody's ever said, Hey, I, w- I wish I didn't have so much shooting skills. Like I, I don't, I don't need this, you know, like, <laughs> I w- <laughs> like it, it doesn't make sense. So <laughs> I don't necessarily mean to make, you know, this as being this, uh, cause I mean, some people will probably look at me and be like, well, you have a bias and you're always trying to, you know, show how competitive shooting, you know, is, is, uh, is a benefit for defensive, uh, shooting or whatever. And that, that may be true, I guess, I suppose, but, but actually I legit see some of those correlations and try to present them where I see those, those correlations. And don't forget that in the beginning of competitive shooting, going back to the, uh, leather slap matches of the sixties, uh, you know, and all, all the way up through the seventies, the formation of Ipsic, Jeff Cooper was involved in a lot of those things and some of the motivations behind creating some of those competitive matches, uh, back in the day by the legend himself, Jeff Cooper, uh, was to test and try techniques and gear and, uh, and, sh- and shooting skills they wanted to try to test and see what worked and what didn't work and how those things might be beneficial to real world use uh, as well. Uh, there was never meant to be this great divide between competitive shooting and defensive shooting. Uh, and so, but that's, that's, that's the way I look at this. And you and I have had that conversation before Matthew, as far as the, the idea of like, this is how you set up and practice uh or simulate to the best, you know, the best way we can without having fancy equipment or doing force on force. This is how you can set up and simulate tracking and shooting a moving target. Absolutely. It is by setting up a bunch of individual targets and practicing really single shot transitions is what replicates it the, the best. Because that if you watch the motion of that, you'll see that it looks very much like you're tracking a moving target. So just something to think about. And uh, opportunities to go and practice that in a match setting, definitely not a bad thing to do. But again, we started all this talking about a dry fire drill. And this month's dry fire drill and shooter rate challenge was shooting and practicing the skills that make up the shooting stage known as five to go in steel challenge. But ultimately, it's all about learning how to transition effectively onto single value targets there you go that's that's my wrap of uh what we came what i came here to discuss we're a bit over an hour now matthew uh final words before we let everybody go just uh once again merry christmas guys hope you guys stay safe and thanks again for listening uh like always uh we we appreciate you all yeah so much so guys uh also for me again merry christmas happy holidays uh happy new year and we look forward to uh another great year the year of 2023 here at the podcast and here at concealedcarry.com and our family of companies. Thanks for those of you joining with us here live today. Gary, Samuel, Ghost Tactical, Michael, Chuck, Alex, a bunch of you joined us here today. Dropped some comments. We appreciate those those comments and appreciate you for being with us live. And to all those of you that were not live with us and are simply listening to the the, the audio feed after the fact or, or catching the videos after the fact, we still appreciate you too. Share the podcast with your friends, family, and others you think would, would find value from this. Our goal, obviously, is to help and educate, inform, and perhaps even inspire um, everyone in their concealed carry and shooting journeys. And So until next time, folks, a reminder to, to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Take care.